This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson. This week, one side effect of cancer treatment most patients don't think about in advance. At least 60% of people with cancer treatment end up with a sexual problem. The hidden effects of cancer treatment when Radio Health Journal returns. National Kidney Month is a good time to learn about how to protect your kidneys. For example, maintaining a healthy weight is especially important for people who have or are at risk for kidney disease. But how do you do that? Lauren Gleason, Senior Director of Nutrition Services for Fresenius Kidney Care, has some tips. Focus on eating more fresh, unprocessed foods, including fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh meats, and unrefined carbohydrates, such as brown rice. Be sure to include good fats like olive and canola oil and some protein with every meal to help you feel fuller, longer. People with kidney disease should consult their doctor or dietitian about some fresh foods that may be hard for their kidneys to handle, such as bananas and citrus fruits or too much protein. And here's some tricks. Keep healthy foods at eye level in the pantry and fridge with less healthy foods out of sight. And choose smaller plates. You'll eat less. Losing just 5% of your body weight, even if you're still overweight, can reduce your blood pressure and thus your risk for kidney disease. Talk to your doctor before starting any diet or exercise program. Find out more at FreseniusKidneyCare.com. About 1.6 million Americans will be diagnosed with cancer this year. And over the course of our lifetimes, roughly 40% of us will receive that bad news. Today, nearly two-thirds of people diagnosed with cancer survive it. But for many, life will never be the same, sometimes in ways they hadn't counted on. At least 60% of people with cancer treatment end up with a sexual problem. And these problems, unfortunately, don't go away by themselves most of the time, but rather they require some kind of treatment, often a combination of medical and counseling, to really resolve well. That's Dr. Leslie Shover, a clinical psychologist who's internationally known for work on sex and cancer at the Cleveland Clinic and MD Anderson Cancer Center. She's the founder of a startup website, willtolove.com, designed to help people solve sexual problems and infertility that result from cancer treatment. The most common ones for men and women include a decrease in desire for sex and the ability to feel pleasure during sex. For women, the second big one is dryness and pain during sexual activity. And for men, of course, we often think about erectile dysfunction or ED, as we tend to call it. Those are topics that most people are shy about bringing up. This is no exception, and the reluctance comes from both ends. Most oncologists get very little training in talking to patients about sex, and oncology nurses and social workers have a lot of motivation to help patients, but often also don't have a lot of knowledge or training. And a lot of professionals assume that if a patient has a question about sex, they will bring it up. 
But our research suggests that only happens maybe 10% of the time in medical settings, and that maybe 90% of the time people are too embarrassed or think it's not appropriate or just, you know, don't bring up their questions. Some situations may promote even more reluctance. Some people are gay or bisexual and may not want to disclose that in a medical setting. They may have been negatively judged in the past, and we tend to assume that everyone's heterosexual when we're talking to them about sex in a, in a medical setting. When clinicians do bring up sexual issues, Scover says they typically do it only in the starkest terms, as if the mechanics of sex are all that matter. But she says people are worried about more than that. Like, will I be able to enjoy a variety of sexual practices? Will my partner still find me attractive if my cancer was related to a sexually transmitted virus? Am I still dangerous to my partner? And then they have the issue of dating after cancer. And people often are reluctant and worried about how a new partner is going to accept the news that they have had a history of cancer and end up with some kind of damage to their sex life. Seeking help after treatment is a good thing since so many patients never do it at all. But Chover says it's probably a little bit late. Addressing the issue actually should start as soon as a patient gets a cancer diagnosis. Survival is clearly their number one concern in choosing a treatment, and patients may think about side effects like nausea as well. But Chover says sexual fallout is only sometimes considered at all. When we do surveys, it appears like about half of patients get something in their informed consent for treatment, whether that's surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation therapy, that mentions the possibility of a sexual problem. But that means that about half don't. And it's true that breast and prostate are the sites we think of a lot, but what about colorectal, bladder cancer, and some systemic cancers, intensive chemotherapy can cause premature menopause for women or damage nerves or hormone levels in men. Chover says especially when it comes to prostate and breast cancer, a variety of different treatments are equally effective. However, they provide completely different sexual consequences and doctors often don't adequately explain them. So for prostate, there's the question of radical prostatectomy, which probably leaves about three quarters of men with significant erection problems, no matter how good the surgeon is, and even if the man starts out with good erections. Or with breast cancer, there's a lot of pressure now, sometimes inappropriately, to do a complete mastectomy and breast reconstruction without a lot of explanation that the reconstructed breast may look pretty, but it's not going to have much of any sensation, let alone erotic sensation. One other facet of life that's often affected by cancer treatment is fertility. Clinics are getting better about talking about it with younger patients, but only about a quarter of men who are eligible to bank sperm do so, and only about 10% of women preserve their eggs for later use. There are a couple of major problems. One is that the decision to preserve eggs or sperm or create embryos before cancer treatment has to be made usually relatively quickly. Like the whole process may only take anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks for women, but 
there are a few types of cancer like acute leukemia where it may not be safe to postpone treatment even that much. For most other types of cancer, it isn't terribly dangerous to postpone treatment as far as we know or research has shown, but patients and even oncologists have the mentality, oh my God, you have cancer, you should get treatment tomorrow. So although sometimes, of course, just scheduling cancer surgery or radiation therapy is going to take several several weeks because of the schedules of the treatment settings. So that's one barrier is the fear of delaying treatment. Preserving eggs is an especially costly procedure as well, and insurance often doesn't cover it. But Shover says many cancer clinics, even some that are well known, are poorly equipped to deal with sexual and infertility problems in patients. Shover's extensive website, willtolove.com, seeks to fill that gap by answering questions and even offering self-help and counseling services. You can find out more by visiting will, the number two, love.com, or through a link on our website, radiohealthjournal.net. Our production director is Sean Waldron. I'm Nancy Benson. Medical notes this week. You may need to rethink your drink. A study in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia shows that excess sugar, especially the fructose in soda, may damage your brain. People who drink a lot of sugary beverages are more likely to have a poor memory, a smaller overall brain volume, and a significantly smaller hippocampus, a part of the brain that's important for learning and memory. But researchers say don't reach for low-cal soda. Another study in the journal Stroke shows that people who drink diet soda are nearly three times as likely to have a stroke and develop dementia as those who don't drink diet soda. Courses that teach mindfulness and meditation help women, but a new study shows they don't help men at all. The study in the journal Frontiers in Psychology shows that while women are more prone to depression and downcast mood overall, learning mindfulness significantly helps them overcome it. However, men are mostly unaffected. And finally, where a baby's born makes a big difference in how much they cry. A study in the Journal of Pediatrics finds that on average, babies cry about two hours a day their first few weeks of life. Over three hours per day is officially a colicky baby. And you'll find more of them in England, Canada, and Italy than anywhere else. About a quarter to a third of babies there cry more than three hours a day. The lowest percentages were in Denmark and Germany, where only about 5% of babies spend so much time crying. And that's Medical Notes This Week. More in a moment. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.